heads up to our listeners. Today's episode includes some disturbing recorded audio from the aftermath of a police shooting. If you're listening with little ones in the room, you might want to pause it here and come back to this episode later. So we can say it together. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. It's so convenient that you have that tattooed on your body. Yeah, I'm going to tattoo the next quote on before we meet again. <laughs> Oh, are our voices very similar? They are very similar. How are people going to know who's who? Maybe they don't have to know who's who. That could be that could be one of the weird conceits of this podcast of is we never let people know who's talking. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. All right, so we've got the first thing down, right? Actually, they will figure it out though eventually because we'll start to share things about our lives. Oh yeah. And people will like look us up on the internet and be like, "Well, which one of them?" is the one who has three children. <laughs> or, exactly. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we are the Brown sisters. We are the Brown sisters. I'm Autumn Brown. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown. And this is our inaugural episode of How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. It was interesting. I was like having this conversation last night with someone who was asking me, like, how could you live where you live? How could you live there? I live in rural Minnesota and I live on five acres of land in like a country ass situation. And I moved there from New York City in 2010. And it was like a very intentional move because um, my partner and I really. <laughs> You know, not to be too, I mean, whatever. The show is in part about the apocalypse and like how do we navigate and survive it um, or whatever, whatever word we're going to use for that. But like for us, it felt really critical to think about what do we need in order to survive and what do we need our kids to know in order to live over and like survive the next like 50 years, yeah, 100 years. yeah. And a lot of that stuff is stuff that my partner already knew about because he grew up out there. Um, and I had been going out there since I was 19 years old. You know, we met when we were 18. Um, yeah, we, it was a very intentional move on our part to like live in alignment with our values and live in alignment with the land and really be stewards of a wild space. And so like the space that we live in is also, we don't live on a farm. We live on five acres in the woods and we garden a quite a bit, but we're also very much like stewarding wild space and in a community where um, it's like uh, mostly forest, you know, and that's a significant part of how we all want, like everyone is sort of understands themselves in the midst of like, we all have very different politics, but everyone understands themselves as being stewards of this piece of land. To me, that's a very emergent lifestyle and also answering some of the big questions of life, which is how do we survive? How, you know, um, how do we teach our children to survive? How do we prepare our children to be in this particular world? And do we choose to prepare them to live in cities 
and to sort of tough it out amongst a lot of other people with very little access to nature? Mm-hmm. Um, or do we take them and say the important, you know, some of the most important relationships in your life will be the relationships that you have with this particular place, these trees, this these lakes, this sort of infrastructure of life. Right. Yeah. Knowing that either way, there's going to be like enormous loss in that period, right? Like, I think that one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and I, I know you think about it a lot because we both do a lot of like science fiction writing and thinking is there's all these interesting stereotypes of like how people behave in disaster situations um (laughs) and like in apocalyptic moments that are really not borne out by reality and so you know for people who live in rural areas there's definitely this sort of stereotype that people in cities will come and swarm our rural spaces and will like try to take our land and take all of our whatever and all the jam um and all the jam mm-hmm. which they know we have because you make pantries. jam that's what you do oh, that's right i do make lots of jam i mean um, technically you do but i was saying it as a joke yeah because <laughs> <laughs> like, country people uh, they country just... people they make jam exactly. also we make marinara sauce um but <laughs> but i but like the reality is you know as we see like many apocalypses on a regular basis and the reality is that people who experience those things happening in major urban areas stay in those urban areas right they fight for those spaces they do everything they can to not be pushed out of those spaces um and so it is interesting to like live out where i live and have a particular relationship to this space knowing that actually um, when push comes to shove, I would probably end up more isolated than a lot of people would be in an apocalyptic situation because a lot of people would be centralizing themselves in urban spaces. Yeah, and I think there's a good question around, like, would you go towards that? I mean, I feel like a big reason that I live in Detroit is because it's kind of the, it feels like the place in between those two mm-hmm. extremes, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm like, Detroit is a city. You know, it is definitely an urban area. There's a lot of people here. And yet it's a city that has lost so much of the, you know, peak population. It feels like a country place a lot of times. And there's like wild pheasants running around. And there's like whole parts of the city that are just wild and growing and growing over. And I love that. Like on my, I live in the in the Cass Corridor, which is like right down the middle of the city. Um, and it's being gentrified really quickly. But one of the things I love about it is when I sit on my back deck and, and look out at the sunset, it, there's a huge wild field um, directly in front of me uh, between my space and like the next set of buildings. And there's a dog that hangs out there that I just call dog. The neighbors mm-hmm. upstairs call Curly. Um, but I really think of it as like, that's my dog. Mm-hmm. And we communicate with each other. I throw him meat sometimes. It's all good. And I like how wild he is. And he's like, I made it. You know, this is the third winter now that I've known Dog, and he makes it through the winter. And he's like, you know, he's not like scared of human beings, but he's also not like running over and like. Right. He's like, I don't belong to you. You don't belong to me. Exactly. And he (laughs) gives me a sense, or she, or they, that dog gives me a sense of the kind of relationships that I would like to have with nature in a post apocalyptic future scenario where it's like, okay, like I'm close to my neighbors, but we all have a little bit of room as well for whatever we need it for. You know, some people might use it for gardening. I like to just go out on the deck and kind of do yoga and have my quiet space. But then we also have a relationship with the natural beings around us and it's a respectful relationship. Like I don't need to I don't need to tame you in any way and you don't need to attack me in any way because we're both operating inside of the abundance we need. 
Which brings us to yeah. uh, one of the central questions we thought we might try to talk about yeah. um, in this first episode, which is like, you know, we often talk about, um, you know, the idea of how we would survive yes. um, in an apocalyptic situation. Yeah. And we don't often talk about whether humans deserve to survive, which feels like I have to say as a parent, it's an awkward thing to even say out loud. Right. Because like, do I want my children to survive? Yes. Do I myself want to survive? Yes. Like, do I want humanity to continue? Humanity. Humanity. I do. I do. I want all those things, but I also, but you know, it's hard to divorce our ongoing existence from the ongoing harm that we cause to the planet and to each other. And so I think, I, I think there's some argument to be made around, like, we have to like start thinking of how do we begin earning back our right to be here? Do you know what I'm saying? I feel this very deeply. Like I, if I was to say like, what are some of the core questions that led to emergent strategy needing to be articulated? Mm -hmm. It was, I feel like we need to earn our space on this planet and in the ecosystems. Cause I, you know, when I hear people say like, oh, we're destroying the planet. I'm like, we are harming the planet. But I really deeply believe this is a resilient planet. Mm -hmm. And short of an actual Star Wars Death Star, like I think this planet can bounce back from- Which to our knowledge does not exist yet. Knock on wood wood. and on our heads, whatever. But, you know, short of that, and if it did, we wouldn't know. We'd just be gone, right? So (laughs) we'd be like, what's that? (laughs) We wouldn't even be like that. You know, that's one of the things that's so amazing is I'm just sort of like, oh, I don't think anyone on Alderaan really knew what was coming. It was just like, Right. Alderaan's gone now. They're right? just like, that or looks like, like a giant moon that wasn't there before. It's coming closer. Oh, well. Now we're gone, right? right? Or, you know, melancholia is such a beautiful post-apocalyptic vision of like, maybe you know and you kind of have a sense of it, but it's still like a month of suffering or a couple months of suffering versus now we live in this constant sense of mm. we are making things worse for ourselves on a climate planetary level So we're making it really hard for our species to live here, even if the planet will always be able to recover from the impacts that we're having. And then the things that we're doing as humans are unjustifiable. You know, so we are recording this on June 17th. We got the news yesterday that um, the the, um, police officer who killed Philando Castile was acquitted. And you know, we all saw the video of Philando being murdered, or if you didn't see it, you know that it happened. You know that this video was there, that this four-year-old child, his girlfriend's child watched it happen. His girlfriend filmed it, Facebook Live. I mean, this happened. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. You shot four bullets into him, sir. He was just getting his license and registration, sir. Get the female passenger out. Ma'am, exit the car right now with your hands up. Let me see your hands. Exit now. Keep them up. Keep them up. Where's my daughter? You got my daughter? Face away from me and walk backwards. Keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. You look at something like that and you're like, if I was coming, you know, from outer space, if I was an alien coming and deciding, oh, let me check out what the species is up to. And that's the video that filtered up through, Mm. you know, whatever I was looking at. I was like, you know, I don't think that would make a case for this species. I don't want to land here and I don't necessarily want to help these folks out. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think like, 
both, so on two levels, both what we're doing to the planet um, is like, I don't know if that earns us a place and then what we're doing to each other. I think it's not a, it's not a hopeless case, but I do understand why like the people that we looked up to, like Octavia Butler, was very hopeless about humanity. I get it. And, yeah. or Battlestar Galactica is like one of our favorite shows and I feel like their case was very much like a hopeless you know, it's like humanity has not earned our right to exist. Let's fly around in space and see what the hell. Right. And I think, you know, when I look at us now, I'm like, we're basically flying around in space saying what the hell. Like, <laughs> are we going to make it right on this planet or, you know, or not? I think the last thing that keeps percolating in my mind lately is like, and even if we are in the midst of the end of our species, which we might be right now, you know, science seems to say we are, even if we are in that place right now, I still think we go out fighting, right? So there's a big part of me that's like, you know, on my most hopeless days, I still think it's a worthwhile endeavor to engage in transformative justice. I still think it puts something into the universe mm. that's important and that we don't give up on doing the right things and the good things and fighting the good fight, even if it's too small to change the whole course of our species. Right. Um, because who knows, the apocalypse might also be like the apocalypse of big culture. And it might just be like all we have left is small culture. Like your farm, your you know your five acres of land might be the place our whole family ends up living at some point. Mm -hmm. We're planning for it. I mean, this is where I think our biology actually really assists us, right? That like in the face of something that is so um, overwhelming mm -hmm. and hopeless, our biology insists that we don't give up. Um, and I think that that's like it's like oh, good job, cells. Um, <laughs> um, you know, if you just like sort of like look into our cell structure, you see that the tendency is to um, for us to recreate ourselves. Um, and and of course, one of the awesome things about our the way our cell structure works and the way we work at like, you know, a very uh, uh, deep molecular level is that part of how we recreate ourselves is through the inclusion of other things that we don't necessarily think of as like human. Um, you know, if you think of the way our immune systems evolved over time, that they evolved through not just like adapting in response to viruses, but like by incorporating viruses into our systems. So I think that, and actually this is one of those, and I'm glad you brought Octavia Butler because I think one of the interesting, one of the most to me, brilliant things about Lilith's Brood, and this is about to be a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read Lilith's Brood, so just like... Pause and go read it. <laughs> if you're planning to read it, please pause now and go read it. But Lilith's Brood is the Xenogenesis trilogy that includes Dawn and um, Adulthood Rights and Imago. If you are like me and you have a bad memory, you're good. One of the amazing details is that, you know, this this other race of aliens that comes to Earth and comes in and saves some of humanity in the midst of a, like, all-out nuclear war um, the, on Kali. The reason why they do so is because they find something in our genetic material that they find fascinating and irresistible, and it's cancer. And so for them, they're like, you know, you, you have this thing that happens in your biology that we think would actually really assist us once we can figure out how to work with it and that's why we want to actually incorporate with you so it's this interesting thing I think too where um, 
you know, there is that thing, thing of like, oh, geez, if an alien race came here, they wouldn't even want to help us. Or, uh, you know, they might also be like, oh, it's better for the whole universe if y'all just don't keep progressing. We're just going to take you out. <laughs> but there's also this piece where I think, you know, there's this visionary thing, too, of like, what is it that we've got going on that we don't even necessarily think of as a gift right. that we don't necessarily think of as worth? Right. What What is it that what is it about us <laughs> that might that might actually be um, worth? worthy of more attention than what we give it or worthy of a different type of attention so that the attention is not eradication, but actually growth. And I think that obviously for those of us who work in social justice or in movements, um, is a huge part of the argument we're making around social change, right? Like the shit that you're trying to eradicate is actually the shit that we all need. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. The stuff that whatever you call progress is actually eradicating the thing that we all need to survive. And so I think that there is something around just recentering around the things that, Maybe we often think of as simple or slow or yes. um, too little or too late. That's yeah. actually or sometimes we even think of as toxic that are actually the things yeah. that might be most useful to us. Right. Well, and it's like everything is useful to something. I mean, that's one of the truths of our planet and that we are nature inside of that paradigm is exciting. Right. But I do think this is one of the places I kind of wrestle is I I love to travel and I love pop culture and I love like big cities with fancy dinners at French restaurants with like mm. butter and steak and bread. And I love like, <laughs> I love, I mean, the bachelorette, mm-hmm. you know, this season. Um, Actually, the question really is what are the things that you would miss most about capitalism or that you get to have access to within capitalism that you will miss most when it's over. I just want to push back because I'm going to miss I can't let go. You can't let go. <laughs> You're like Whitney Houston, baby. And I and I feel like maybe I, I mean, I think this is the impossible thing is I want to figure out ways to have have it all. Right. And I think that's the you want urban agriculture and Beyonce, too. Sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this is why I think um, I think it's Marge Piercy's um, the woman on the edge of time. Like there's this concept in it where like instead of there being Picasso in a museum and like some rich person actually owns it, it's like the Picasso moves around and you might get to have the Picasso in your house for like a month and then you let go of it and someone else gets to have the Picasso. Right. And so anyway, so that, you know, is one possibility for how, but so, and the first thing that came to mind was Beyonce because I feel like I've had to fight fight for my right to be a, a Beyonce lover. You won that fight. Thank you. But I also feel like it's because she earned it, right? Like, I'm like, if you talk about a human who has earned her right on this planet, oh I mean, God. she, I feel like, has worked so hard and keeps learning in public. So she, to me, is someone who, even when people are like, she's a capitalist, I'm like, no, she is a very, I mean, she might be, but. Whatever, no, no one individual is a capitalist. Sorry, that's not how it works. Exactly, that's my thing. I'm like, (laughs) what she actually is, is a really, really, really successful woman in this current system. Mm -hmm. And the way this current system allows that success to be managed and, and manipulated is by earning a lot of cash. So once you earn that cash, you have more freedom to do all these other things. And that's, what I've understood to be her framework yeah. for it. If we lived in a culture where it was like, if you have the most trees and that's what we give to singers who are incredible, then she would just have a bunch of trees right. or whatever it is, right? So I'm like, I think that for me, I'm just like, oh, when we see a black woman succeeding like that, I hate that the knee-jerk reaction is like, here's what's wrong with her succeeding like that, that we don't like, hold others to. Right. We don't even know the name of all the white producers who have like a million more money. <laughs> 
But so that's one thing. But I don't know. I don't know if the other stuff, but like I do really love steak and butter and bread, coconut water and quinoa and stuff that like doesn't come from like the particular ground around me. And I'm like, what will I do if I don't get to have coconut water anymore? That's one of my things. What about you? What are some of the things that you're like? Oh, well, like Netflix, you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot about like, what are the things that I get access to through the internet? Yes. That like, um, the whole internet, the whole internet that I'm like, what is the infrastructure that's going to sustain my ability to access this? But even like, there comes a certain point where like, no one's going to be producing like the handmaid's tale on Netflix, like in 50 years. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's, that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, Oh, like my, the, the things that like technology allows me to sort of like escape into. Um, but then there's other stuff too, like the sheer pleasure of depositing money in my bank account. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Or like when I did, I don't have experiences anymore, but when I used to run an organization, um, there was like a lot of pleasure I would experience in like putting money in the bank account of my organization because then I knew that like that was paying people salaries. So just the experience of like getting money and like knowing that it means like this other thing is going to be able to be possible and like it's interesting to notice that like I like that feeling even though I know it's not... I don't know. Well, what's what's the word I'm looking for here? It's not that it's wrong. It's not that it's not real. I think that it's something akin to the feeling of satisfaction that would come from like harvesting, mm-hmm. right? Where I'm like, I did a bunch of work and now I get to harvest something from that work. But yes. that gets transferred over into the realm of money because the work that we're doing is no longer just putting seeds in the dirt and and cultivating them to grow. It's like, oh, I'm putting seeds of ideas in people's minds and cultivating it to grow. Or I am, you know, holding a space or I am running an organization or something else. And I don't get to harvest it from those people because they're out doing a million things. So one of the only things that I get in response is like, oh, here's, you know, a couple thousand dollars Mm -hmm. that says we value the work that you put into it. And I think it's it's such a mind fuck because I am constantly in this sense of uh, I don't have enough, but anything I ask for is too much. Mm-hmm. I stay in that zone. So yes. like I get some satisfaction from paychecks and I also feel shame every time. Like, why don't I just offer this thing for free? I love these people. I want to see black liberation. I want to see the earth healed. Why can't I just figure out a way to offer this for free or for just whatever donation people will offer me or whatever. And then on the other side of that, I'm like, I can't breathe. I'm so burnt out and exhausted from making this offer. And those paychecks coming in help me to have a little space, yes, right? Exactly. So, oh, but one more thing on the like things we would miss, blah, blah, blah. Just really crappy reality TV shows. I mean, I love those. Like yeah. um, The Real Housewives of Atlanta is one of my favorite things now. Like. I've never watched any of the Real Housewives shows. You don't have to watch most of them. Okay. But the Real Housewives of Atlanta, <laughs> it's an art form of like just petty, shady behavior. Mm-hmm. And and again, I think part of it is like I'm able to hold it as like it's on TV. It's these people who are doing it as a performance art. Like no one actually acts this way or treats their friends this way. Um, I mean, surely people do, but like, I'm like, we're all in on the farcical nature of what we're watching. And we're like all choosing to be entertained by these women just being like, you know, I mean, I watched an episode recently where someone was like, um, (laughs) this woman started talking and this other woman interrupted her and was like, you know, you don't know how to be quiet unless there's a dick in your mouth. (gasps) 
And it was one of those lines where you're just like, whoa! Right? And I'm like, that's something I would never say to anyone. But do I want it to be said? Yes, someone needs to say that. (laughs) Maybe that's also the thing. It's like places for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. I think really so much of the stuff that I would miss is like, I think that in our activist and movement spaces, Mm -hmm. we make so much room for our good behavior, our loving, connected, like centered, grounded, all that stuff. And we don't leave room for like, our bad behavior, (laughs) our whole humanity, like our shady, petty thoughts and snarky things and all of that. And I feel like in a lot of the utopian visions of the future, that's the thing that I kind of miss. Right. Oh, now everyone just gets along all the time and no one ever says anything that hurts anyone else. And no, I mean, it's like, where's the laughter? Like, where's the like... I don't know. Just And also, where's, like, the, in reality, like, where's the conflict that helps us grow, right? That, like, no one grows or learns anything without, like, having to be in conflict and be uncomfortable. Exactly. Um, and, of course, you know, that's one of the big things that we also miss in our movement work is, and, you know, it's a big part of what, like, you know, we're, we're doing this recording in the midst of the 19th annual Allied Media Conference and Alicia Garza was just here doing the keynote for the opening ceremony, which Adrian hosted. Um, and, and Alicia made this really beautiful point about like, I don't remember exactly how she put it. Here's the thing about humanity. We hurt each other. We disappoint each other. We're gonna make each other mad and we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna disagree and we're going to disagree a lot. But building a movement across difference for the sake of our collective transformation, that's my commitment. Yeah, and she said there's no movement that's ever succeeded without people in it that were disappointing. Exactly. And I was like, girl, you know, I was like, that's so, I mean, it's so important. I, you know, we both do facilitation. Mm-hmm. Like we facilitate different kinds of things, but really so much, and we get to talk about it. And it is one of the biggest things. So many of the meetings and the conflicts that people are having is basically not being able to just say, I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. I expected more. I'm disappointed in yeah. what's actually happening. You hurt my feelings and I didn't think that you could do that. And people don't know how to just be like, I'm disappointed. And instead they turn it into, you know, you went against our values, right? And it's like, maybe you did or maybe you didn't, or maybe you just were like disappointing and overwhelmed or hurtful or a little callous. Um, and, and I feel like, yeah, I love what Alicia was saying and I love the place that it's coming from. Cause I'm like, you know, doing the Black Lives Matter work, I imagine is, and I've seen up close, there's so much disappointment that people have for not already being, you know, fully yeah. clear on like their analysis on how black liberation is gonna work. Mm-hmm. and being all on the same page about it. And and then, and we've talked about this a lot, there's the n- people who like just woke up yesterday um, who are already wanting to tell everybody else about themselves, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, oh, how to be patient. It's like, you really just learned what feminism was mm-hmm. and you just learned about intersectionality right. and now you're being so furious at everyone for not doing it perfectly mm-hmm. when we're all... So we're babies at all of it. We're babies at transformative justice. We don't right. know yet how to do it, but we want to learn. Mm-hmm. We're only going to learn by being humble with each other that we need to learn. Right. So I thought it was, she's incredible. Oh, we all needed to hear that message. So one thing I feel like I, I had an intention for us 
was to always include directly some words of Octavius because it does feel like she's the root system or in the root system of this podcast and in the root system of our lives. Yeah. I really feel like you and I have been in conversation about Octavia for years, so long since college. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I feel like both of us have written science fiction that we feel like is trying to pick up the legacy of Octavia Butler in some ways. And, you know, moving that out into the world Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and like honoring her legacy. And so I would love to have a quote from her each time. And I think this first time, starting with the all that you touch, you change quote, feels really good to me um if it feels really good to you yeah so we can say it together Mm -hmm. like right now yeah let's say it together all All that that you touch touch, you change all All that that you change changes you the only lasting truth is change god is change it's so convenient that you have that tattooed on your body yeah i'm gonna tattoo the next quote on before we meet again (laughs) (laughs) um so what does that quote mean for you? Like, how, how do you manifest or live your life in relationship to that? All that you touch, you change. Mm-hmm. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Well, <laughs> I mean... I feel like I've so directly experienced this, especially in the last like several years of my life of like that it is inevitable, like that there's an, there's a, and there's a momentum and an inevitability of a certain momentum in life that, um, you know, I've had experiences in the last few years that have just like sort of knocked me off the path that I was on and onto a completely different path and then found myself there and been like, oh, this is where I was supposed to be. Um, and my ability to like be on that other path like was in part the circumstances of like what happened to me and then in part the circum like the my willingness or ability to like say yes to it. Um, so like, you know, I mean, as you know, Adrian, um, in 2014, I lost my fourth baby Yeah, and in utero and like two weeks later was laid off from my job, you know, by these evil people. If you're listening right now, evil people, <laughs> you should know that I still think you're evil. Yes. <laughs> and the whole family agrees with that. Everybody, Everybody agrees. I wish you well um, in your own transformation yeah, far exactly. away from us. I'll, I'll <laughs> um, so, but, you know, but it was like, so it was this awful, like extremely traumatic experience that ultimately like the way I the way I relate to my child now is that like he created by leaving me he created a space in my life for me to fill with something that was my choice um and up until that point I hadn't been feeling much like awareness around like this piece of of my life's work or my life's purpose that was really missing which was my artistic work yeah and I remember like two years later um it was October 8th 2016 and I was starting my the first day of my first ever writing residency in Vermont and it was the anniversary the day I arrived was the anniversary of the day that I found out that he died and I got there and I like settled into my studio and like set everything up and then I walked outside and stood at the river and I was like wow like thank you baby like thank you my baby thank you my child because you 
by leaving me, you put me on the path to be here right now. And like in terms of like something really actually touching you, like he was inside me, like he was alive inside me and he died inside me. Like I carried him through his life and his death. And like there's no deeper connection I feel like that you can have with someone, you know what I mean? And like because of him, like I was able to actually take the steps towards like writing my book. You know, this book that had been trying to come through me for seven years at that point. You know what I mean? Like, but I hadn't actually been able to really create space for it. And so, um, and so that's one of those things where like. Can you just take a second? Yeah. I mean that, I just feel like it's so important. Like when you go through things that are that deep. I think there's a way that you get like, oh, I know how to tell this. I know how to say it. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, and also let it land. Like, it's like, yeah, that's, I mean, it's so huge. You know, it's so huge. Having walked that path with you, it's just like such a big part of your life and such a beautiful place that you've come to. Yeah. Well, and I think this is another one of those areas where like I've really experienced Octavia as a teacher, right? Because that the two years between that, That, those were like the darkest years of my life. Like, palest. <laughs> very funny. Uh, thank you. Those were the palest years of my life. Um, but like I was, I had so much rage. I was in so much pain. Um, but like the complexity of that, it was, was that like it also was like so much fire for my creativity. And like, um, you know, and I think one of the things I just, So even for me and saying out loud that like my baby died and created space for me to become like an artist again, like that feels like a, uh, almost, um, uh, what's the word? Like it almost feels like an inappropriate thing to say out loud because of all of the cultural mores we have around how you're supposed to experience death and grief and loss and all those things. Right. But one of the things I loved about Octavia's work is that she's always with that. Like she's always in her work with like our like whatever we believe that we think that's right and wrong yeah you know what I mean she's just like oh do you really think that's right and wrong what yeah. about under these circumstances yes you know what I'm saying and that's for me like the in terms of that quote of like all that you touch you change all that you change changes you part of what I've had to be really open to is understanding that like I'm gonna have experiences in my life that are kind of fundamentally change the way I believe about things yeah like what I believe and how I believe it and how I walk that belief yes and like if I can't, if I don't, if I can't be adaptive to like the fact that I just have a new belief showing up inside me, <laughs> like, you know, how am I supposed to even be able to show up and facilitate and be helpful with other people? Exactly. Yeah. That's great. What about for you? I mean, I think for me, um, well, I mean, it's just so interesting. Like even right now I'm feeling like, oh, like I feel so touched and changed by like you know, I was there with you through that pregnancy loss mm-hmm. and I was your doula for, I was supposed mm-hmm. to be your doula and I was your doula for what ended up happening with the infant phenomenon. And, um, and then I had my own ectopic pregnancy, mm-hmm. you know, after that, like six, six months, months later. after that. Right. <laughs> and where, you know, I, you know, where, which we were just, <laughs> it's just like, the chances of my ectopic pregnancy, I mean, the, the odds of it are so, so extremely rare. Mm-hmm. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but I was so touched and changed by going through that experience with you. It was my first time as a doula going through a pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know really going through pregnancy loss and really being like oh I need to meet you where you are you know and that means right now I'm going to come smoke a cigarette with you right now we're going to you know stay up all night and we're going to drink and we're going to just talk about this Mm -hmm. or right now we're just not going to talk about this Mm -hmm. or right now like you know you have another friend who's been through this experience and y'all are just going to go for a walk and I don't know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and you know and I'm going to be here when you get back and make some bread or something right Mm -hmm. and just be like I don't know how to be in this but I'm going to learn and I think that piece is like the only lasting truth is change is like Nothing that I knew on October 7th was particularly relevant on October 8th. And it was less relevant in that following month, right? I was like, everything I thought I believed um, shifted. And, you know, and I loved that baby, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way that I love your kids, it, it, you know, each child has totally changed me. Yes. And this one did too. Um, and then I'm like, oh, and then I went through my own pregnancy experience and I was changed in that yes. and really didn't expect to be um, like, and I didn't expect to experience it as a loss, but I'm like, I lost a baby. Yeah. And I will, that's an experience now for the rest of my life. And a um, part of your body. And a part of my body. I lost my left fallopian tube, and that's just never coming back. And actually, just now, I was getting like a healing session. I was having a healing session, and the woman kept asking me, like, what's going on? There's something going on in your left side. And finally, I was just like, I had a, a I had this ectopic pregnancy like two years ago. She's like, oh, all right. There's probably scar tissue. There's probably, mm-hmm. and I was like, what? No, it's so small, you know? And uh-huh. of course, of right. course, of course. Of course. And of course, like I've been experiencing nonstop dis- just Im- imbalance on the left side of my body since then, of course. right? Of my course. knee doesn't work. My hip doesn't work. My shoulder hurts. Like everything's on the left side. Mm-hmm. And my heart is broken about it, you know, and it's still broken about it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's one level that's that, where it's like letting go of what you think you know to be present with what's changing. And then I think the other way that I see it, that it means a lot to me as a quote, is I think most people focus on wanting to change others. And it's all about like, how can I change you? How can I change you? Mm. And so we love this, all that you touch, you change. We love that part. Um, We don't love the part that's all that you change changes you. Mm -hmm. And the idea that like, if we change, for instance, if we change someone who's um, a white supremacist, who's committed to white supremacy in some way, they're going to change us back. And we don't want that, right? right? Like, I don't want someone who I feel is committed to hatred or toxicity or evil to change me in any way, right? right. I don't want to. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, how do we do that? Oh, except once you let someone in as a fully human person, sorry, then you're you can't like, avoid oh, it. <laughs> you're going to change me. And, mm-hmm. and, and I have to be in relationship with that. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, Octavia throws us in that scenario over and over again where someone has to come across someone who has what seems like an opposing worldview or is upholding the patriarchy or something Mm -hmm. and that person they have to figure out how to move forward together yeah um so i think about that for our movements a lot it's like how can we measure how willing we are to be changed Mm. and like that that actually should become a measure of our success as movements it's like we are willing to be changed by each other and we still have some intention, something that we're moving towards, you know, some something about our humanity that um, pulls us forward. So it's not just like, oh, just change me. I'll become a white supremacist. It's like <laughs> white supremacy is the water you're swimming in and you're interacting with this other human who has been swimming deeper in that water. And how mm-hmm. do you help bring them up and how do you change in that process and then keep going? Right. And I, I also, you know, something about this that I've been thinking about lately, something about um, change that I've been thinking about lately is how so often people are resistant to changing because 
they don't want to be labeled as anything negative. So I've had this experience recently where, Hmm. like, I talked to this white lady the other day, and she was like, well, I mean, this language of white supremacy, I mean, that's not, like, I, I mean, you know, I definitely do some stuff, and it's a little, right, (laughs) problematic. I do some things. I do some things that, you know, but, I mean, it's not white supremacy. That's like, and, you know, in her head, she's like, that is a neo-Nazi who's walking around in a uniform, or it's a KKK person. That's a white supremacist. I'm just a, you know, lightweight microaggressive person right (laughs) and like not wanting to see the tie between those Mm -hmm. and in the same way like you know in moments in my life when I've been learning about trans people I've been like oh I'm not transphobic I just have these problematic thoughts yeah I'm just like (laughs) I just don't understand this or don't understand that Mm -hmm. and it's like no one wants to be labeled with that stuff while you're in your learning journey you're like you know we can't see ourselves and so I love this because it's like all that you touch you change and then all that you change changes you you can't see the things in yourself that even need changing Mm -hmm. you can't see them right and so it's like people are always going to hold up the mirror to you or at the point where you see them changing is or the thing at the point where you see that they need changes when they're already in the process of changing (laughs) exactly it's like oh that is unraveling you are unraveling your life is so yeah I'm just like I'm so grateful to Octavia for leaving us this wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like... But what do you think about God as change? I, I think that the idea, not just of like, you know, the Christian God that we grew up with, um, but like, you know, Jesus, Allah, Buddha, like anytime it was like individualized, that divinity was individualized, I, like, I was like, I feel the beauty and I feel this pushback against the individualization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That it was like, I think that the God feelings that I have are never individual. It's always a feeling of oneness, of interconnectedness, mm-hmm. of um, surrendering to the fact that I'm not separate. Um, it was really like how I feel it. So then trying to then uplift any one being that's, you know, looks like a human mm-hmm. or whatever has always troubled me and has always kind of maybe like um, just because I know how flawed I am right that I'm like the idea that that this God being could also be like this flawed being um, always kind of messed with me and then when I read that God has changed I was like that's what it actually is it's like something you know when there was a when there was a nothing something created some change happened and then something emerged from that change and planets emerged and stars emerged and matter emerged and like magic and miracles and like over time change 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 amoebas tadpoles frogs you know like whales whales oh my gosh (laughs) then freaking humans right i'm like and i don't think we're the peak like i don't think we're the end of this journey right i'm like i am excited i want us to keep evolving i want to know what the next level is i don't know if it's you know cyborg i don't know if it's organic cyborg i don't know well and i just like i think that like the i actually think that the the individualization of God being and the idea of peak evolution are very related problematically. You know, or like we're very much related problems of our sort of distorted way that we think about oh, the yes. world, right? Yes. That like, you know, like the individual God being like, oh, cool. So what happened there? Like God colonized a body. Great. Good job. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that like, but then on the other side too, that this idea that like, the idea that evolution is going somewhere, right? That there's a destination for evolution. That we are the destination, right? That So that, like, 
And and I think, but we even we even still think and talk about it in these terms, right? Like when we're when we're talking about like all of what science is going to make available to us and how it might change us and how we might change in response to it. It's all still framed within this idea that like there's some place that we're trying to get to, as opposed to like, as opposed to what I think you point out really beautifully in your book, which is that like actually things like evolutionary processes things like like adaptation happens in response to other adaptations in systems right that it's not that it's actually like it's a conversation not uh, not a dissertation <laughs> you know what I mean I mean like I love that you brought up the cellular structure it's like so many adaptations are not mind-based it's not like we notice this we thought about it we created a solution and we adapted right it's like actually the body is way ahead of all that and the body is constantly making changes and adaptations and even the things that hurt in our body are a lot of times like oh i'm adapting to some behavior that you're engaging in and figuring out how to adapt to it i think that a lot of people now like i mean i don't know that this as a basis, but I'm going to risk saying it. But I think we have so many more people now who are coming into an awareness of chronic pain, chronic illness, mm-hmm. um, chronic fatigue. And I think that there's something at a large scale level that's saying it's time to slow down. Mm-hmm. Like the pace at which your species is trying to move is too fast for each other. It's too fast for the planet. It's too fast for the resources. You're just you're going. You're just spinning yourselves out of control. Mm-hmm. And it's like if we were spinning in a circle, like just standing and spinning in a circle, we would recognize it. But because we're mm-hmm. in this collective activity, we can't realize. It's like we are dizzy, but yeah. we don't even know it, and we're trying to make decisions from that place. So I think that there's so really many point. bodies that are like slow down. Mm-hmm. My body needs to slow down my brain doesn't process stuff that way like slow Mm -hmm. it down and to me I'm like oh I think I think that that's an adaptation in response to our hyper culture the internet our hyper exposure to each other and each other's traumas because we you know have all this exposure but no tools with which to process all this exposure so it's not like we learned like here's a daily meditation you can do after interacting with the internet and feeling everyone's pain, (laughs) right? right? No one taught us that. Or even just like to keep breathing, keep hydrating, keep Mm -hmm. looking for the good amongst the hard. Like we just didn't learn that. And so a lot of us, I mean, we just are an, we're like an open door for all the worst things that are happening in the world to come walking through and sit on our couch. And we don't have any way of setting those boundaries, closing the door sometimes, right? So then I think this thing is emerging in our bodies that's saying, and we're like, oh, it's disability. And it's like, I think it's a brilliance. I think there's a brilliance afoot and it's an evolutionary brilliance. I think it's saying slow down. So stuff like that, like I'm like, that is also God, yeah, right? Those things that we look at and initially we're like, this is horrible or this is so hard you know every time my body fails me in any way I'm like this is so hard I feel like so sad (laughs) that this is happening Um, and I'm struggling so much with my own ableism and all this and then if I surrender to it it's Mm -hmm. always better for me like it's always like oh I needed to I needed to ask for help and I Mm -hmm. connect myself to another human being to receive that help I love this idea of like chronic pain and needing to slow down as being like an adaptation or an evolution. And that I think that the other thing that it affords, right? Like anytime we experience that we're in pain um, or that we have needs, it requires us to respond by creating webs of care. Um, And that like, ultimately that's what's needed, right? Like ultimately what we need right now is a planet that where our orientation to how we like, 
um, are self-organizing is through the lens of care. Like, what care can we provide to each other? What care can I provide? What care do I need? Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that like if that's if that is an adaptation that the body's making in response to the internet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good job, body. As always, I'm always I'm always like this is my whole thing. This is my whole thing about the body. I always say this to people when like people are like thinking about or talking about pregnancy, where I'm like, this is one of those great examples of like how it's really important that the body's in charge of this. Can you think of how much mistake would happen if the mind was in charge of the process of like building this creature that's growing inside the body, right? It's like, whoo, good thing that good thing that the body's responsible for this one. Thank you for listening. This is our pilot season, and we ask that as you listen to these shows, that you think about what else you'd like to hear, that you listen as someone who's helping us to shape this as a longer project. You hold two cuts of wood. During this season, we will be touching on grief and ceremony, bodies and liberation, writing and creativity, history, and speaking with our ancestors. If you want to help us keep doing this, you can make a sustaining donation through Patreon by visiting our page, patreon.com slash Into the World Show. You can also find us on social media at Into the World Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I don't know if you can hear it, but I have a little kid coughing in her bedroom next door. (laughs) So hopefully that will not show up in the recording. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by our beloved Zach Rosen. Today's episode features music from Abishai, Tunde Alaniran, Audio Binger, Kayla Drew, Blue Dot Sessions, and Alex Fitch. Special thanks to Oren Goldenberg for the audio recording of Alicia Garza's keynote address to the 2017 Allied Media Conference. And a special shout out to our movement comrade Mafa Malik, who came up with the name for this podcast. And the hurt that you wish reversed in a heartbeat. So style, I'm not allowed. So you pay for Panopticon, they can watch me. No flops will be yours, footprints on new shorts.